I'm gonna aim for Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Lord willing today. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and then you be put in prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Perhaps no sin is used to justify self-righteousness more than the sin of murder. It's very common, at least in my own personal experience in evangelism, for somebody to reject the gospel, to say, hey, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. You know, I'm not saying Jesus isn't true or the Bible's not true. I'm just saying I don't need a savior like that. And, you know, often in evangelism, I might ask the person, well, what's going to happen to you when you die? And the person says, you know, if there is a heaven, God will let me in. You know, and I'm thinking the God that you kind of believe in might kind of let you into heaven. Okay. Why? On what basis should God let you into heaven? And people will often say, especially Americans, will often say, because I'm a good person. And I, I can't help but follow up to that kind of statement with a question. What makes you a good person? It's a very hard question to answer. Because oftentimes if people answer it, they will put themselves under the authority of the Bible. They'll say, I'm a good person because I don't do these kind of sins that the Bible teaches. But notice, even in that answer, you're recognizing the authority of the Bible and submitting to it. So that's a problematic answer. I mean, I don't think most people are that thoughtful about it. Most people don't really think about what's going to happen to them when they die, strangely enough. So an answer that's very, very common is people will say, I'm a good person because it's not like I'm, you know, one of those evil, wicked people. After all, I've never killed anyone. I'm not a murderer. So murder is kind of recognized as like the out there sin, like the extreme, the worst of the worst. And then people justify their own conduct in life because they haven't done that. They haven't reached so high to depravity to actually kill someone. Therefore, they are okay with God. Jesus is exposing that kind of self-righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going after the heart of self-righteousness. And he is going to unpack and show how self-righteousness has no standing before God. So that's really how the Sermon on the Mount is functioning. If you're going to pursue justification, righteousness with God by your own righteousness. If you think that you are going to get to heaven when you die because of how you live, the Sermon on the Mount is meant to combat that and tear you down and expose to you that you, if you live like that, you're not going to heaven. If you live like that, you stand condemned by God as a sinner. The only hope for going to heaven is a justification, a righteousness that's outside of you that depends on somebody else's life, not your own. And again, people close their hearts to that, very frequently close their hearts to that, and say, I don't need an alien righteousness. I don't need a righteousness from outside of me because I've got my own, thank you very much. I don't kill people. I'm like one of those wicked people on death row. No, I'm, I'm okay, and God knows that there are people worse than me. So Jesus uses the Sermon on the Mount to tear down the self-righteous 
and point people to the forgiveness that comes through Christ in the gospel. That's how the Sermon on the Mount functions, to tear down the self-righteous, rule-keeping, Sabbath-keeping Jews and build up instead a people that recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy and receive the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So the introduction to this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, was the Beatitudes, where Jesus basically explains that. That's his introduction. That you have to be spiritually bankrupt, spiritually poor, recognize your own depravity, receive a righteousness from outside of you, your hunger and thirst for righteousness. God rescues you. You now share that with others and receive persecution. That's the introduction. Then, like, like any sermon, he has his thesis statement or his proposition. He doesn't have it rhyming with, you know, the same three letters, but he's working on it. And his proposition is that he fulfills the law, so you let your light shine. Jesus fulfills the law in your place. You receive that light through faith in him. Now you have a light that shines out of you. You do not let your, life sh your light shine by doing better and trying harder. You don't let your light shine. You're not the salt of the earth by, you know, trying to do better in life. That doesn't make you the salt of the earth. That doesn't shine your light. Your effort isn't your light. The light that you have is the light of Christ who fulfilled the law in your place. So Jesus led the perfect life, fulfills the law, gives you his righteousness, his life. You now have a light that can shine through your faith in Christ. So that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. He now moves into the body of the sermon. He's got a six-point outline because he didn't have, you know, a time constraint. He's a six-point outline. His six points are six ways that you think you're righteous, but you're actually self-righteous. And that's what comes next in chapter 5. The six ways, by the way, he's working through the second table of the law. The second table, if you're not familiar with that expression, that, you know, the second table of the law is the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first group of the Ten Commandments uh, is how you relate to God. That's the first table. You know, there's only one God. Don't take his name in vain. Don't have idols, etc. Honor the Sabbath. The second table of the law is how you relate to others. So the first table of the law is the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second table of the law is love your neighbor as yourself, and that's the second uh, group of the Ten Commandments. Jesus works through the second table of the law to expose self-righteousness. Now, there's a brilliance in his approach. Only he can fulfill the first table of the law because he's God. So he fulfills it not just by his own obedience, although he does that, but he fulfills the first table of the law because he is God. He's the object of that table. He, he is the one true God. You know, he doesn't make idols. He is God. The second table of the law is how you love your neighbor. He drills in there to show the folly of self-righteousness. The self-righteousness does not understand the heart of the law. So here's six, his six points. You know, you think, you're self you think you're righteous because you don't murder, but then he goes to the heart. What about anger? That's the sixth commandment. Then he does adultery. It's the seventh commandment. You think you're righteous because you don't commit adultery. What about lust? That's the seventh commandment. Then he does divorce. You think you're righteous because you don't divorce for unbiblical reasons, but you're coveting your neighbor's wife. That's the tenth commandment. Or you swear falsely. You think, oh, I'm godly because I don't swear falsely. And Jesus says, but you keep swearing. That's the ninth commandment. Or an eye for an eye. You think you're godly because you only exact revenge, but you're, you're not resisting the evildoer. Or the, the final one, hate your enemy. He says, you, you guys teach each other to hate your enemy. But I tell you, pray for your enemy. Love those who are persecuting you. That's the whole second greatest commandment right there, the whole second table of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
I want to look at the first of Jesus' points this morning on murder to show how often we use self-righteousness. We feed our self-righteousness by saying we are a good person because we don't murder and we ignore the heart of the law, the heart of the gospel, the heart of sanctification. All that is discarded when a person thinks they're righteous because they don't actually kill somebody. I want to give you an outline this morning. Uprooting anger because anger, Jesus says, is going to be the heart of murder. Peel back the layers of sin involved in murder and what you're going to find at the heart of it is anger. So Jesus' goal here, remember what he's doing, for this to make the most sense, remember what he's doing. He is exposing the self-righteousness of people that think that they are righteous before God because of something they don't do. And again, it is just worth mentioning, what a shallow view of righteousness that is. Oh, I'm a good person because I don't do this. I'm a good person because I don't do that. Your goodness becomes defined on negativity, things you don't do, no positive virtue in that. So Jesus is exposing that with his list. You think you're good because you don't murder, but I've got news from you. The heart of the law is not about murder. Jesus is going after the heart. And he does that in all six of these points. He does that with a very interesting expression. I want you to see it in verse 21. You've heard it was said to those of old. It's an interesting turn of phrase, to those of old. You've heard that it was said to those of old, don't murder. He's quoting the sixth commandment verbatim from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Do not, thou shall not murder. That's what he's quoting. And he says that was spoken to people a long time ago. That phrase to those of old, it could be ancestors, could be translated that way. But it's a, it's a phrase that creates a distance between you and the people to whom it was spoken. And I said it's an odd phrase because why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus speak in a way that creates a distance between his disciples and those who received the Ten Commandments? We're not even talking about the dietary laws in the Old Testament or anything like that. We're talking about the Ten Commandments and Jesus is going to talk about them in a way that speaks to them as if they're from a time, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so to speak. Why would he do that? Aren't these disciples under the Ten Commandments? Don't they come to them? But Jesus is using this phrase. These Ten Commandments are spoken to a different generation. Because that's the phrase that's used in Jeremiah 31 that we read for our scripture reading earlier. That's the phrase that Jeremiah uses to identify the era of the new covenant. Not like the covenant God gave to those people in the wilderness a long time ago, but he will come again in the flesh and bring a new covenant through his spirit to the world to a different generation. So all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to use that phrase. What he's saying is that this is the new covenant. I'm getting behind the law. The law exposed sin. I'm drilling behind that and showing you where true righteousness comes from. It does not come from yourself, but it comes from the Spirit of God who goes inside of you, who forgives you of your sin, and writes God's law right in your heart. That's what Jesus is doing here. You think you keep the sixth commandment by not murdering people. I got news for you. God is concerned in this new covenant era about your heart. And so to expose that, he starts with murder. And I'm going to call it the weed of murder. 
That's the, the poisonous weed that's growing up in front of you. The, the nice grassy field here with a big weed right in the middle of it. That's murder. Murder is prohibited by the old covenant law. It is against the sixth commandment. There are six different passages in the Torah that command the death penalty for murder. Murder is wrong for at least two reasons. One reason is external because it goes against God's command and you'll be punished for it. One reason is internal because you're supposed to love people, not murder them. The external reason is significant, by the way. God established government to reign in murder. When God invents government in Genesis 8 and 9, God gives government four jobs. I'm not going to review all four of them now, but I will tell you this. One of the most important of those four jobs is stopping murder. God designs government to execute people who murder. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's hand shall his blood be shed. This is new in Genesis 9. It did not exist before then. You know what did exist before then is a lot of murder. When sin entered the world, murder came with it. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. God comes and makes a sacrifice for them, covers their sin, curses the serpent, curses the earth. The very next chapter, the very first sin described in the Bible is the sin of murder. Murder might strike us as uncommon today, but it was not uncommon before the flood. It was the first sin committed in the fallen world where Cain murdered Abel. Remember, Abel shows up with his sacrifice to offer it, and Cain comes along and murders Abel. God does not execute Cain. God tells Cain to run and live his life, which Cain does and populates the earth. And the earth was marred by murder. The next chapter is Lemek. Remember, Lemek celebrating how many people he can murder. Cain murdered one, huh, rookie league. Lemek says, I'll murder all kinds of people. And then bloodshed reigned on the earth for however long it was. I think it was probably a longer time than we might imagine. However long it was between the fall and the flood, murder reigned on the earth. It was the age of violence. God destroys the earth, repopulates the earth with Noah and his family. Only this time, he establishes government to stop murder. So the main things government's supposed to do. Now let me mention this briefly because it's implied in this passage. People ask about capital punishment. You know, is capital punishment still standing? And, and I would say it is. It's not given to Israel. Capital punishment does not enter the world through Israel as if it was bound to the old covenant. Capital punishment enters the world through common grace given to the nations after the flood. It's a function of every government to put to death those who murder. Now, that doesn't mean that every government doesn't write. It doesn't mean that there's not, you know, a two-tiered system of justice in some countries where wealthy people get away with it and poor people get executed for murder. I'm not saying that's, that doesn't happen. Of course that happens. But I am saying the Bible teaches that the right punishment for murdering someone is that person to lose their life. And there's an argument against capital punishment that, well, that doesn't make sense because if man's life is so precious, why would you kill somebody who takes a human's life? Doesn't that show, doesn't that diminish human life by killing the murderer? And I think that's a very misguided argument. Um, and I say misguided, I've heard people say, I don't spank my kid 
for hitting his brother. I wouldn't spank my son for hitting his brother because then he would learn that hitting's okay because I spanked him. You follow that logic? It doesn't work. It's, it's very superficial logic. No, you punish the son for punching the brother so that he stops punching his brother. It's an act of love towards the offended party. I'm not getting any amens from the brothers in the audience. <laughs> the same thing is true with murder. You don't say, oh, you wouldn't put to death the murderer because then that shows how easy it is to take human life. No, you put to death the murderer to protect all human life. It demonstrates the value of it. That is a very important reason why murder is wrong, is that you will be punished. Even in our society that has sort of stepped away from the death penalty. You know, murder now might get you 20 years in prison, parole after eight or something like that. Yet the fact that there is a consequence for it restrains evil. If you don't believe me, look at our society when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, where abortion proliferated. Absent the government restriction on it, it ran wild. Having the restriction is a deterrent, not a perfect deterrent, not a 100% effective deterrent, but a deterrent to murder. That's true. I belabor that point because I want to ask you a question. To the person who says, I'm a good person because I've never murdered anybody, here's my question. Why not? Why haven't you murdered someone? Certainly you've been angry enough at somebody to do it. Is it just a crime of opportunity? Or is what has restrained you external to yourself? Where you think, I don't want to do that because that's like serious. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to lose my life. Notice that if that's what restrains you, it says nothing about you. Nothing good about you. But I do think that is a deterrent to murder. That people don't want the punishment of it. So again, lack of murdering, you don't murder someone, does not make you a good person, especially if it's the external component that's restraining you. Your heart is every, every bit as wicked as the murderer. You just don't act on it. You don't act on it. Well, that's the first reason murder is wrong, because, you know, it goes, you know, cost you. It goes against God's command. But the second reason murder is wrong is because people are made in the image of God and you're supposed to love them. So this gets to an internal reason. You're supposed to love the people around you, not kill them. Your lack of murdering them says nothing about the presence of love in your heart. So you can keep the external part of the command and not murder someone and still be breaking the heart of the law if you don't love your neighbor. So again, you don't murder, great. But that doesn't make you a good person. It certainly does not fulfill the law. The language you're using here is fulfilling the law. Not murdering does not fulfill the law. Fulfilling the law looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. That's how you fulfill the law. And you can't do that. That was the point where we ended our sermon last week. You, can't, you better be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees if you want to get to heaven that way. It's impossible. You can't love your neighbor as yourself all the time in every way. You can't do it. That makes you guilty of it. Guilty here of the very sin that leads to murder. So if murder is the weed, get it ground for a second and let's look at the root of it. The root of murder is anger. The root of murder is anger. And that's where Jesus goes next. I say to you, and notice the contrast that Jesus uses here. 
You heard that the sixth commandment says this, but I say something different to you. Nobody can say that unless they're God. You can't rewrite the sixth commandment. Are you kidding me? But that's what Jesus does. He says, you've heard the six, he's not representing like a thing the Pharisees spun in a wrong direction. He's quoting the sixth commandment and saying, you know, the Torah says this, but I got something more important to tell you. Imagine saying that to a, a field full of Jewish people who are raised in Judaism, including a handful of Pharisees there, I'm sure. Imagine saying that I have authority that's over the sixth commandment. That's bonkers. But that's what Jesus says. He puts himself as the lawmaker. Now, he's not contradicting the sixth commandment. Contradicting the sixth commandment would look like saying, you've heard it said don't murder, but I say go for it. No, he says, you've heard it said don't murder, but I say something deeper than even that. Everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. The phrase liable to judgment, does it sound familiar? Because he used it at the end of verse 21. The punishment in the Jewish world for murder was you were turned over to the little district court there, the little council of elders in your town. Every town had them. And they passed judgment on you. Jesus says, you know who deserves that? The person who's angry at his brother deserves the punishment for murder. It's the same punishment he just said fit murder. And he's saying, I'm telling you, everyone who's angry with their brother, that's what they deserve. Anger is the sin. I mean, murder is the most flagrant sin that ends a human life. But anger is the sin that destroys families. It burns like wildfire through your, through your family, through your home. It incinerates marriages, disintegrates relationships, energizes gossip, guns down classmates, divides churches, makes estrangement of your parents or your kids or your brothers and sisters. Anger just wrecks the life. And wreck any organization, any church, any body, any club, any team that it's allowed on. Sometimes that kind of anger can be mild, like frustrations, complaining, irritation. Maybe just being passive aggressive. You're angry at someone, so you're kind of passively aggressively sniping at them. But often the anger bubbles over into outbursts, yelling, cussing, name calling. Often it's intense. Sometimes it's just internal bitterness, but it often breaks forward into hostility turning your friends into enemies, turning your neighbors into strangers. That's what anger does. David Pallison defines, well, it describes anger this way. He said, anger is irritability with a hair trigger. I love that expression. Anger is irritability with a hair trigger. Anger isn't something that happens to you. Anger is something that you do. And you hear people excuse it saying, oh, I'm, just an, I'm just an angry person. You would be angry too if you've been through what I've been through as if anger happens to you. But anger doesn't just happen to you. Anger is something that you do. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You see something that you perceive as wrong. You take it personally. And then you act out against it. That's anger. You're acting out as the the consummation of it. You acting out is the exposure of the anger that's in your heart. The transaction happens in your heart when you see something outside of yourself and you're like, that's bad, and I'm offended by it. Now I lash out in anger. Now, not all anger is sinful, of course. Let me be very clear about that. Not all anger is sinful. God is angry at sinners. 
God is angry at sin. Jesus is angry at sin. Jesus cleanses the temple, and when everybody sees it, they remember the prophecy that zeal for his father's house will consume him. But notice the difference. God is angry when people sin. God is angry at the sin because sin is against God's character and against God's nature. God is what is best for the world. Sin is against God, so sin is against what is best for the world. And so God has a righteous anger towards sin. When you are angry, you can have a righteous anger. If you see something that offends God and you're angry at God being offended, that's righteous anger. That's a powerful tool to be used for justice in the world and to be used to right wrongs in the world. I mean, great. But if we're being honest, that's not 99% of our anger. 99% of our anger is not seeing God being wronged and being offended at that. 99% of our anger is seeing us being wronged and being offended by that. So there's something that's not right and it's to you and you see it and you get bothered by it and offended by it and then you act on it. You lash out at you, you complain about it, you slander about it, you talk about it, you strike the person or you want to strike the person or you just yell and nobody's, you're in their car. They're not around and you yell at the person. That's all the overflowing of anger. That is the root that produces murder. But great, you're not murdering the person because you're, Restrained. It's the same sin. David Pallison, in his book, Good and Angry, which I stole the title for the sermon, challenges you to ask, in that moment, you perceive the wrong, since there's a wrong in the world, you perceive it, you're offended by it. At that moment, what is it you want from the situation? The person who is angry, the person who's the victim here, the person who's wronged and they're getting angry about it, what is it that that person wants at that moment? It's a very clarifying question. And he, he writes in his book, Good and Angry, to, he warns you, don't allow a negative answer to that question. You know, so the wife who says, uh, you know, is getting angry at her husband, she thinks, what do I want? I just don't want to be treated this way. That's a negative answer. Or the husband who's, who's getting angry at his wife and you think, what do you want? And he's, I just don't, I just don't want to be ignored this way or I just don't want to be neglected this way. It's negative answers, not helpful. Give a positive answer. What is it you want when you're being angry? In this moment, I want to be treated like I deserve. I want to be recognized for who I am. I want to be given what I want. Like, say it in your head. And no sooner than you say it do you realize that you're taking the position of God, Right? I want to be treated the way I want to be treated. I deserve that. I just want my way right now. That's all I want. I want what I want. <clears throat> and I'm angry I'm not getting it. I want my life to be like this. And it's not like this, so I'm angry. That's putting your, that's the violation of the first commandment. We're back on the first table of the law now. You recognize that anger, it may be a violation of the sixth commandment, hating your, your brother, murdering your brother in your heart, but it's a real problem because of the first commandment. You're putting yourself in the first table of the law. You're acting as if you need to be worshipped, as if you are the one who defines how your life gets to go, as if you have certain expectations, and if they're not met, it deserves righteous wrath. That's only a response God can have. So much of our so-called righteous anger is righteous anger and that is like God's anger 
but it's not righteous anger because we're the ones being wronged, not God. If you're angry over how you're being treated, I'll tell you this, it is not righteous anger. If you're angry over how God's being treated, that could be righteous anger, sure. But if you're angry over how you're being treated, I'll just save you some time. It's not righteous anger. It's the root of anger. It's in your heart. It's wrapped around your heart. And you're acting on it. You're letting it come out of you in the form of slander, gossip, in the form of violence, in the form of cursing. You want to be treated in a certain way and you're not getting it. And so I'm encouraging you to actually, next time you're angry, actually ask yourself that question. What is it I want right now? You're angry at traffic because it's going too slow? Don't say, oh, I'm angry because I, I don't want to be late. Say it positively. I'm angry because I want to be where I want to be when I want to be there. And when you say it like that, it's much sillier, isn't it? And I'm, I'm not denying there's important things in the world. You're trying to get to a doctor's appointment that you've had scheduled for months with a specialist and traffic is backed up and you're angry at the guy occupying two lanes on his cell phone looking for service. Like you're gonna miss this appointment. It's very important. But say it positively. I'm angry that I don't get to be where I want to be so that I can have the health that I want to have when I want to have it. When you start thinking like that, it dilutes your anger big time, big time. It exposes your values and commitments and you realize that anger is often a form of idolatry and you're willing to lash out at those that don't accommodate you. Thirdly, the poison of slander. Anger doesn't stop just with the affection in your heart, the idolatry of your heart. That's where anger stops. It keeps going. Jesus says, whoever insults his brother in the middle of verse 22 will be liable to the council. Insults his brother there, it's the, it's the word raka, which is not really translatable into English. It's a, you know, a kind of expression that is a put down. It means empty headed. It means dull witted. It means stupid might be the closest English expression. That person's just stupid. That's the, that's the word raka. Sometimes it's called a fool, but fool is a better word for the, the next half of the verse. Raka just means it's an insult to somebody for not being smart enough to keep up. It's a very slanderous kind of thing to, call, to say to somebody, that God made that person. You're saying God didn't make that person smart enough for my taste. Raka is a word that could describe anybody that drives slower than you on the freeway. Like they're just not smart enough to keep up with the world. How dare God allow people like that on the freeway, much less in the world? That's Raka. And that's what anger does. It produces that kind of slander where you start calling people that you know and you love names or you should know and love them. He's talking, you're talking about your brother here. They'd look at verse 22, the beginning of it. Whoever's angry with his brother, that's an expression for brothers and sisters in the, in the, in the Lord. That you're calling other Christians foolish because they're not as smart as you think you are. That's a serious sin. Again, a violation of the sixth and the first commandment. Because they're made in God's image and you don't love them. 
You're liable to the, the word here for council is not the little district court that was described earlier. The word council here is the Sanhedrin. So what Jesus is saying, if you're angry with your brother, you deserve the district court. If you call him a, a fool, if you call him dim-witted or stupid, you're liable to the Supreme Court. This gets elevated fast. You think someone's not as smart as you and able to keep up with you? Then you deserve to go before the Supreme Court. The 72-person Sanhedrin that's going to execute Jesus in a, a few years. That's where you deserve to go. Try your luck with them. They're not exactly a merciful bunch. And then finally here in verse 23, whoever says, you fool. This is the, the word for moro. It's, it's the Greek word. We get moron from it in, in the English language. But it's not intellectually dim-witted like raka is. This is a word that is, is a godless word. Like it's a word somebody who's, who's taking risks, who's living out there on the edge, denying the existence of God, who thinks God won't judge them. They can get away with whatever they want because God doesn't see and God doesn't care. That's this word. This is anybody who drives faster than you. That covers everybody, right? This person is taking so many risks. It's like they don't even believe God will judge them. Jesus says, if you treat other people in the Lord like that, you deserve hell. That's the court that outranks the Supreme Court because you're wondering where this goes. The first offense is the district court. The next offense is the Supreme Court. What's the third one? Oh, you stand before God and you go to hell. This is a person who Jesus died for their sin and you're saying they're acting like God doesn't even exist. God will judge you. You're angry at them. They're in your family. They're in your family. It's the poison of slander. And this is where anger really puts on colorful clothes when it comes out. Because you have a lot of words to choose from. So you can make your anger articulate and beautiful. You can dress it up in all kinds of language. That's what slander does. This is why Proverbs 22 verse 24 says, Do not be friends with someone easily angered, or you will be like them. You know people like that, right? Who are just angry about everything. They're angry about the country, they're angry about politics, they're angry about sports, they're angry at their neighbors, they're angry at the traffic, they're angry at their work, they're angry at their dog. Proverbs 22 says, don't be friends with that kind of person. They're not your project. Don't be friends with them. Walk away from them. Keep your hands in plain sight and move away slowly. You don't want any trouble with that person. Move along in your own life. Otherwise, you'll become like them ugly, slanderous. And that's, that's the poison of this. You know, it's like poison ivy. You know, the, the poison is not just on the leaf. It's all on the vines and it's under the ground and the roots. You don't want to mess with that. Just move along. But that's not where this ends. It ends, Jesus says, with the fruit of reconciliation. Now this fruit comes when the root of anger is exposed. It can be transformed into a godly affection. Anger can be transformed into something positive and virtuous that produces spiritual fruit. Jesus says here, it's reconciliation. Verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there on the altar and go. First you reconcile to your brother and then come offer your gift. So a few things here. The Jews would offer a gift at the altar. The altar is in Jerusalem. 
Uh, you would do that on some of the feast days, or if you did a really bad sin, you might bring a, a gift there. Jesus is giving this sermon in Galilee. It's like a two-day walk to Jerusalem. So he's talking to people that they must have sinned against somebody big time if they got to bring a goat all the way to Jerusalem and offer it at the altar. That's a big deal. Now imagine doing that. You got the goat all bound up there and you would hand it over to the priest and the priest is the one who actually offers it on the altar. You don't as, a, as just a, a lay person. So you, you walk the two days to Jerusalem, you hand the goat over to the priest and now you remember, oh, I never repented to the person I sinned against. And in the context here, it's the person you sinned against is probably the reason you got it offered the offering. It's not that you have, your brother has something against you and they're the guilty party. That's not what we're talking about here. Your brother has something against you and you are the guilty party. That's the point. You sinned against them. So not one of these apologies like, oh, I'm sorry you felt this way. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about you did something to this person. So significantly, you got to offer a sin offering for it. And you got the, the goat all bound up two days away from your house. And you're like, oh, I never apologize to that person. Jesus says, leave the goat and go get on your horse and go find the person. Don't offer a sacrifice for sin if you didn't even repent to the person you sinned against. Now, there's something massive in this. Jesus here is elevating himself above even worship here. He's saying what he is, what Jesus is expressing here is more important than your worship. Now, who can say something's more important than worship? Only God. Another way Jesus is reinforcing his own deity in this sermon. And he's telling you, listen, reconciliation at this moment is more important than worship. Now, in church, we don't have, we don't have any animal sacrifices. It's, he's not talking about communion here. Our worship is not, I mean, our sacrifice is not communion. Communion represents the Lord's sacrifice, not your sacrifice. Our sacrifice, if anything, is praise, an offering of praise. We bring songs out of our lips. So don't come to church, you know, with your hands held high, singing praise Jesus, when you're sinning against those around you and you have not repented to them. Just close your lips. Find the people you've sinned against and repent. Why do you think God will listen to your songs if you're sinning against people around you and this is not something new that Jesus is saying either. This is old school. This is Psalm 66, verse 18. If I have wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. This is Isaiah 1, verse 11, where God says, I'm so sick and tired of your animal sacrifices. Why don't you try loving justice for a minute first before you bring another animal to the temple? Jeremiah 7, verse 9. How dare you steal and murder and then come to worship? The idea here is that you did something wrong. Go repent. Go repent. And you think, yeah, all right, I've got conflict with this person, but I don't know how much of it is my fault and how much of it is their fault. If you're thinking that, it's your fault. <laughs> this is not, it's not a zero-sum game here. It's not, it's not, there's not a judge that says you're guilty and they're innocent. Often in human conflict, both sides are wrong. This is very easy to imagine. Most scenarios, probably both parties are guilty, by the way. Not one innocent, one guilty. Most scenarios in the church, both are guilty. Most. Not every, but most. So if you're in that kind of situation, before you sing your next song, go repent to the person. And sometimes you can't restore the relationship. 
I chose the word reconciliation, not restoration. Sometimes you can't restore the relationship. Sometimes you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You know, you've sinned against a person in such a way, the relationship cannot be restored. But you can reconcile, you can ask for forgiveness, and then you can return to worship. And if the person says, it's too personal to me, I cannot forgive you, that's okay. That's not on you. You're not responsible for what they do. You're just responsible for what you do. Repent. Repent. But it's amazing that people, angry people often always talk to the wrong people. Angry people talk to everybody else except the person they've sinned against. They don't talk to God and they don't talk to the victim. They talk to everybody else. And so Jesus says, close your mouth. Go find the person you sinned against and make things right. And make things right. I can't help but think of Cain here. Cain brought his, Abel brought his offering. Cain brought the wheat. Abel brought the animal. Cain murdered Abel. Do you remember what God told Cain after he murdered Abel? Look, the sin offering is standing right outside the door. It wants you to master it. Go grab it. Own it. But Cain was unwilling. He wasn't willing to make amends. He wasn't willing to repent. He left the sin offering there and he fled to the wilderness. Don't you do the same thing. There is the fruit of reconciliation that Jesus offers you. So you think, how can I pursue reconciliation? And this is where anger, key point, look up. This is where anger can be transformed into righteousness. I told you earlier that righteous anger is being offended at what God is offended at. How do you make your unrighteous anger like righteous anger? How does God respond to his own children when they sin against him? If you want to be like Jesus, why don't you respond to people who sin against you like God responds to people who sin against him? And for his children, God responds to people who sin against him with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness. So somebody sins against you, why don't you try responding that way rather than with anger? That's how you take the seed of anger and you turn it into the fruit of reconciliation. And you think, yeah, but what if this person keeps sinning against me? It just goes on forever. Well, how long was God patient towards you? Was he patient with you towards seven sins? Or more than that, maybe? For seven years or more than that? My mind goes back to Genesis 6, where God tells Noah, I've had it with mankind. I'm not going to put up with this sin anymore. There's a limit to my patience. And that limit is 120 years? That's so long. That's the limit of God's patience right there. Someone sins against you, let grace cover it. Let mercy cover it. Let forgiveness cover it. Maybe God will work in their heart and bring them to the point of repentance. You just worship with a pure heart. Let me tell you why that's important. And this is where Jesus ends. Verse 25, he uses an illustration. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Now, Jesus isn't teaching a new moral principle here, like as if you were sued by your neighbor for whatever, you should settle with him quick. He's not teaching that. He's using an illustration from Roman life to illustrate his sermon, okay? He's preaching like a preacher, using an illustration. In the Roman world, if you get sued, 
your accuser serves you the papers with the time and date. Your accuser comes, and the two of you have to physically walk next to each other to court. That's how the Roman world works. The idea being that on the walk to court, as the two of you are walking together, you could sort this thing out yourselves. Just have a conversation. And if it's sorted out by the time you get to court, the judge doesn't even want to know. Just go your separate ways. But if you aren't able to sort it out by the time you step foot in the courtroom, you don't know what the judge is going to do. You don't know whose side he'll be on. He may respond very unfavorably to you. So it is in your best interest, both of your best interests, to reconcile on your way to court. Now, the implication here in the illustration, you're the one who's wrong, okay? You sinned against somebody. Repent. Don't say, I'll repent tomorrow. Repent today. You don't know if you have tomorrow. That person may go before the Lord and say, this person sinned against me. Lord, avenge me. You don't know what the Lord's going to do. What if you die today? You're going to find yourself hauled before the judge. You don't know how he's going to respond. That's the illustration here. You're going to find yourself in the court before God, an accuser accusing you of sinning in a way that deserves hell. Today is not only the day of salvation. Today is the day of sanctification. Today is the day of being made right with those you've sinned against. Don't put this off to tomorrow. That's the illustration Jesus ends with. Because you don't know if you even have tomorrow. If the person who's sinned against you isn't coming to reconcile with you, have patience because the Lord had patience towards you. What's the main point of this section here? I'll say it this way. The main point is it's possible to be a moral, tax-paying, hard-working, country-serving, self-sacrificing dad and be as guilty and as deserving of hell as the person on death row. For the main point, it's possible to be a family-loving, child-raising, homeschooling, minivan-driving mom and be as guilty of murder as anyone on death row. Your righteousness is not sufficient to stand on. That's the point. It's just not. You don't fulfill the law. You break the law. But Jesus fulfills the law in your place by loving his neighbors perfectly. And where did it get him? Crucified on the tree. So you think, how can God respond to sin by showing mercy and grace and forgiveness? How is that right? Well, it's right because God takes the sin and puts it on Jesus. So Jesus suffers in the place of sinners, paying the penalty for sin. So God can forgive and can show mercy and can show grace because Jesus suffered on the cross for our sin. That's why you can have your sins forgiven. That's how you can have your heart transformed. That's how you can repent of your anger. You say, this person sinned against me. I want to respond like Jesus responded. I'm going to show them grace, mercy, and loving kindness, knowing that Jesus died for their sins. This hinges on them being your brother or sister in the Lord. Jesus died for their sins. I can certainly look away. Lord, we're thankful that you didn't turn a blind eye to our sin, but you poured out every piece of justice that it deserves. You poured out all the wrath stored up in heaven on your son. It was his perfect life and he bled and died for our sins. So Lord, we pray that you would sanctify our hearts, help us repent from anger, turn away from sin, 
to serve you with a clean conscience and a pure heart. For anyone here today that is, doesn't know you, I pray that their hearts would be pierced by this, that they would see their own self-righteousness and would turn from it and receive the forgiveness that you offer through the gospel. And for those who are believers here today, Lord, I pray that we would not be harboring sins against one another, that we would be confessing them, repenting of them, and moving on with worship. It's what you've called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. For more information on our church or our current service times, go to ibc.church. For more information about the Master Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been a blessing to you, and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel with boldness.